Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is New Books and Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, we're speaking with Stephen H. Knobloch, author of the book, Bodies and Social Rhythms, Navigating Unconscious Vulnerability and Emotional Fluidity, published in 2020 by Routledge. Dr. Knobloch is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. He is a clinical adjunct associate professor at the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis of New York University. His prior books are The Musical Edge of Therapeutic Dialogue, published in 2000, and Forms of Intersubjectivity in Infant Research and Adult Treatment, published in 2005. Dr. Noblock, welcome to the show. Thank you. So why don't we start with your telling us what your book is about? It's a challenging question to do <laughs> with a short answer. Basically, I have um, addressed what I see as uh, a, a major limitation in the clinical work that psychoanalysts and psychoanalytically informed psycho, uh, psychotherapists do, which is uh, to put too much emphasis on listening to words and meaning, um, uh, which tilts things toward cognition um, and representation symbolically, and not enough emphasis on paying attention to uh, the emotional experience of their patient and themselves as reflected very often in subtle embodied cues such as uh, facial expressions and uh, body movements, and particularly uh, tone of voice and the rhythm of voice. So how did you become interested in this or how did you even realize that this was something that was under addressed in in psychotherapy well as i trace in the uh, introduction to this book i realized in retrospect that it's something that developed very early in my life because i grew up in a uh, tough on a street that was a tough working class environment where um i was involved in physical fights in, in at as young an age as three years old, and became very aware of um, gangs and uh, and um, violence, and uh, pick, developed a, a, a um, sensitivity to cues uh, such as uh, facial expressions, gaze, um, rhythm of speech, pauses, rises, and 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 uh, and, and uh, lowerings of the voice level. Um, and uh, it, I, it was also a multicultural world that I grew up in, uh, particularly um, exposed to, in addition to my background, which is Jewish, Italians, um, uh, Irish, uh, African-Americans, Latinx folks. And uh, very quickly, um, without really understanding the economic and political significance of that, became sensitized to those differences and uh, the spaces 
that they shape and the dangers and safety involved, all on an embodied level, all unspoken. Uh, I want to add to that that I probably uh, was drawn to um, jazz music uh, in my teenage years, somewhat because of that sensitivity. Um, Jazz involves very subtle uh, attention to rhythm and tone and gesture and a uh, improvisational um, expression coming out of that sensitivity to oneself and one's and and one the other players around one so uh, when I uh, through a long story which I won't go into became involved in first community mental health and then mental health I already sort of had the sensitivity and the awareness the attention um, to focus on on the uh, my and the patients or my clients uh, embodied expressions and the emotional significance of those to the degree that they're apparent because often it's not so clear. Uh, but that's also true of language. I mean, people say things and they don't necessarily express what they mean. We understand that psychoanalytically in terms of unconscious processes. Um, but I think that gives you a little bit of a background uh, for how I came to this. And then just to add that when I um, started my studies, particularly in my grad, in my uh, uh, postdoctoral training, uh, I um, worked with Beatrice Beebe, and who uh, familiarized me with all of the research that was being done in the infant research world, infant caregiver uh, interactions, which uh, really gave me a language that I could use uh, in psychology for the kinds of experiences that I had had you know, as a child uh, with regard to safety and danger as a young person, and then later on as a musician, um, working with the uh, very fast-changing and nonverbal cues that go on with the uh, performance of a jazz piece. I want to draw draw out your concept a little bit more because I think we're all familiar with the notion that we express ourselves nonverbally, but I feel like your book is going further than that and, and going into something uh, deeper than that. You talk a lot about embodied rhythms and the way that certain meaning is embodied, I think rather than verbalized. Am I getting that right? And can you unpack that for us a little more? Yeah, I think the significance of that um, sort of falls into two uh, areas. One is that um, you know, social psychological research has shown that human communication happens uh, something like 80, 90 percent. I don't remember the exact amount, but significantly more on embodied nonverbal um, registrations of exchange as opposed to verbal language symbolic exchange. Um, but the other and I think most significant for uh, our work as uh, therapists is the fact that uh, often trauma, whether it's personal or historical, and it's usually a combination of both, uh, often trauma is not easily expressed. Either it's so painful, even if it's conscious, it's, it's very painful. It's hard to talk about. Um, recently in conversations with my uh, young colleague, Daniel Gazdambidi, we've talked about how uh, in working with bilingual patients, there are certain things that they just can't express in one language, but yet they can express in another language. Um, 
but additionally, uh, some trauma, as uh, particularly the the um, literature on sexual abuse indicates, is dissociated. Um, it's no longer available for memory, for reconstruction, for representation or representation. It may never have been represented because it was so horrifying. And uh, that trauma can be sexual, also can be racial, also can be related to some sort of disability or any kind of othering. Could be based on religious or cultural difference. And uh, this, of course, becomes critical to the time we live in where uh, othering, particularly racial othering and economic othering, is so pervasive and um, often traumatizing to so many of the patients that we see. So when you say that we sometimes express ourselves not through language but through embodied rhythms, Mm -hmm. is the idea that such expression is less intentional or not intentional in the same way in contrast to how expressing ourselves verbally is intentional? Like, are, are we expressing things in embodied ways that we don't realize that we're expressing? Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. It's tricky. Um, so much of what we do express about ourselves is out of awareness. Um, and it's interesting as uh, a person who's worked in psychoanalytic psychotherapy for so many years uh, to realize that very often the other, who is a patient, will know more about me than I know about myself. And of course, that's the advantage for the patient, that I being the other might be able to recognize some things about the patient that they don't know about themselves, and that's why they're coming to see me. Um, so often, uh, I mean, some of this is just things that we take for granted, but we don't pay attention to the significance of. For example, uh, you often hear in couple therapy that the um, one spouse is saying, he or she yells at me so much. And the other spouse says, I don't yell. I just bring up a topic that you don't like, and then you feel like I'm yelling at you. Um, On the other hand, sometimes people are raising their voice or speeding up the volume of their speech or having frowns on their faces that they're not aware of and that uh, have a great impact on the other. So that, um, you know, a child comes home and, and, and is in, uh, had a bad day at school, and the parent may say verbally, uh, that's okay, but the child reads on the parent's face that it's not okay. They see uh, despair or, uh, you know, some concern. And those kinds of things really are happening all the time. Uh, both within therapy and in, in you know, day-to-day uh, relational interaction. I, I hope this is not too obnoxious a question to ask you, but why do we do that? I mean, why are humans this way? Hmm. I think that's a good question, and I'm not going to be um, uh, try to present represent that I, I can answer that so well. I, I think w- we should recognize there, there are a lot of mis- mysteries about uh, being human that we don't fully understand. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hesitate because of the complexity of what I'm talking about to put into words a simple explanation. I would rather say that this is the state of things. This is the condition of things. Um, people often ask questions like, uh, why are we so social? Um, or aren't we naturally, you know, developing into you know, uh, single agent identities. Um, why, why do we still have to so, be so uh, 
reliant on each other. People ask questions as to why are we so competitive or why is, or are we more co- competitive or are we more cooperative? Why does it have to be either or and why and how do we really fully I- explain those things in a simple way? I think it's very complex, um, but I, I imagine one way to think about that, if you want a simple answer, is that we are embodied. We are embodied, uh, even though we have identities and we have um, mindfulness. Uh, without our bodies, all of that is lost. And I think our our bodies are both incredible receptors of information. They're signals. They signal information to ourselves and to others. And we also, um, uh, you know, we're involved in a constant re- receiving and giving out of information not just with other human beings, but with the world around us, with our environment, um, you know. Uh, so it's the answer to that is very complex, and I don't know if I did a good job at even tr- trying to represent that complexity. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you did. I, I appreciate you tackling it. I, but your book is not just about signals and embodied signals. You, you speak about rhythms, throughout the book it's it's in your title yeah why that word how is our communication rhythmic well you know in my first book i have a quote from a a biologist who points out that the on the level on the subatomic and atomic level to the level of um you know plants and animals there there are rhythms and cycles and um so we organize our whole life, both internally, unconsciously, our, um, our heartbeats, our lungs breathe, um, rhythmically, uh, our days are organized rhythmically, uh, their accents and their pauses. And they signal, they have significant emotional uh, uh, power in their signaling. Um, uh, very often, you know, for example, you're carrying something with somebody and they, and they um, you can hear them breathing more deeply and you, and you pick up that, the rhythm of their breath and you say, do you need to put this down for a minute? Should we take a break? Um, so that rhythm, uh, whether it speeds up, whether it slows down and how it's paused or accented is, is a language in and of itself, which is kind of universal too, when you think about, you know, going back to my roots in music, how easy it is to appreciate the music of another culture where you might not be able to understand the language. So, you know, in that example, I guess you're drawing attention to the the rhythms of the respective individuals, but when two people come together, either when they're carrying something or when they're, say, engaged in psychotherapy, do they establish a, a joint rhythm? Does the couple establish a rhythm? I think that uh, that would be too oversimplified to say, um, and an oversimplification. I would say that uh, they develop a range of rhythms. They develop a, a language of rhythms, a culture of rhythms, which are ways of signaling um, safety, security, need for distance, need for uh, closeness. Um, uh, yeah, and um, that's why... Uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy doesn't happen just six sessions because over time one develops a sense of rhythm and then 
the, the wonderful thing about psychoanalytic work or any kind of therapeutic work, which is similar to jazz, is you use those rhythms to create new rhythms, to innovate, uh, to liberate possibilities that were previously locked out of awareness or locked out of expression. Um, so I think we, uh, as we are doing here in this discussion, we're establishing rhythms. You ask a question, I respond. Notice that I try not to go on too long and you try not to go on too long or make the, <laughs> the question too complex. We're already building a rhythm, even though this is the first time, or building a set of rhythms, even though this is the first time we've ever engaged with each other. And, and again, whether it's in psychotherapy or in everyday life, how, how does it help us to attend to those rhythms? How, do we, how does one even, what does it mean to attend? To those rhythms. Well, I think one of the things that psychoanalytic psychotherapy is so much about is uh, engaging uh, emotional distress. You know, people come to us because they're uh, anxious or they're depressed uh, or they're traumatized or all any combination of the three of those things uh, in so many different ways. And rhythm is so central to beginning to navigate. The, the, the incredible turbulence, the incredible inner uh, emotional turbulence that we experience from birth as we try to uh, engage the world and by trial and error we fall or we, or we go forward. And then as we become members of uh, a community or communities to navigate um, all of the practices and beliefs and uh, as they are uh, developed as they change, as as they are shifting, as one moves from one community to another, one might move from the family to a religious space, to an educational space, to a social space, to a space that's culturally a little bit more diverse or less diverse. And each one of those uh, spaces has a set of norms uh, rhythmically, which are based in tradition and are also usually changing on the basis of uh, conditions as they unfold, you know? I mean, look at the conditions we're in right now uh, in our country. We have uh, incredible pandemic. Um, we have uh, a incredible um, pandemic in a sense or uptake of awareness of racial injustice, racial inequities, um, and the economic and political uncertainties that go along with that. Boy, that that is putting into process incredible complexity of rhythms on an individual and collective basis. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to uh, raise a, a quote from the beginning of the book that maybe you could help me understand. You say, the registers of the body, um, oh wait, sorry, that the, the embodied and the social are intention. Intent, how, yeah. how is that? Intention, yes. yeah. Yes. How, how is that so? Why, yes. why are they intention? Let me just clarify for the listener that when you say intention, you don't mean I-N-T-E-N-T-I-O-N. You mean intention, T-E-N-S-I-O-N. Uh, well, I think what I just described is a, a generalization. Maybe we can use a specific example. Um, uh, in in uh, one of the chapters of the book, I, I talk about a patient I work with who grew up in a kind of working class Catholic background and experienced 
as she became a professional and began to travel internationally, um, a different kind of set of uh, practices and beliefs, rituals, um, ways of doing things, and struggled with the meanings of, uh, of the difference between what she carried uh, you know, um, in her body from uh, how she grew up to what she was now feeling in her body uh, in these new contexts. So you could see how the, the um, social context was impacting her embodied experience of what is real, what is right, what feels good, what feels bad, what feels safe, what feels dangerous, what feels liberating, what feels stifling or um, suffocating. Um, how's that for an answer? <laughs> well, and I, I feel like in your answer, you're presenting something that there's a, there's a piece of your answer that I want to zoom in on that I think a lot of us may not think about, which is that how we were raised, the, the culture in which we were raised, that the things we learned uh, through our culture, through our, our upbringing about it, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, that all, all of that we carry in our bodies. Is, is, yeah. that, is that what you're saying? That, that's right. We carry them we, in a representational sense. We have beliefs. Um, and practices based upon those beliefs. But uh, we also pick up on cues um, uh, around us socially. Uh, okay, now it's time to be quiet. Now it's time. Somebody, they're waiting for you to, to act, to, to speak. You should clear the table. You should, you know, um, turn and leave this space quietly. Um, you should not leave this space quietly. Uh, and a lot of these cues are um, embodied, uh, unreflected upon, or they, they get expressed uh, almost unconsciously between uh, folks without any words being spoken. Um, you know, I, I, I'll take an example from jazz. Um, John, Miles Davis used to uh, complain that John Coltrane took too many solos and played too many notes, too long solos and, and, and too many notes. And, 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 uh, he said to, uh, John, you know, why do you do that? He said, well, I just, I just can't find a way out. I, I just keep having so many different thoughts and so many different, um, things that I want to express. And Miles said, well, just take the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> 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 but you, you could see, uh, you know, uh, how there was both a kind of a shared back, uh, a shared tradition as to how to go about doing things. And then also, tension and even trauma you know how might somebody you know john coltrane at the time was a young musician i mean he's become like a, a you know a, a major historical figure in, in the music but at the time he was a young musician playing with this famous band leader who was giving him this great opportunity uh, we don't know what it felt like for uh, you know miles to say that to him i know if if he had said something like that to me if i had ever played with him i would have been totally devastated emotionally <laughs> well would you have done what he said which is just take the horn well, out of your mouth i think that you know i might have had to struggle like john coltrane did with should i stay with uh th this great opportunity i'm making a lot of money i'm becoming very famous or should i you know listen to my own you know uh what my intelligence my experience is telling me which is that there's there's a place to go here where I can bring something very important, very new, 
that will fulfill my the expression of my own you know destiny in a way what i've learned where what i've come from what i can bring to others or should i you know bottle that up he decided eventually to leave the band and create his own band and go his own direction which was differently and i think that um you know we're we're making this much more complex than rhythms but ultimately um we sense these things i often have patients who come in and talk about a workspace and you can tell that they're used to a different kind of um, set of rhythms and how emotions are expressed and how decisions are made and how people um, signal to each other that things are good or bad. These all happen uh, in a very subtle rhythmic ways. One of the things that I appreciate about your book is that you take this, this model or this set of ideas and apply it to understanding of, of dealing with racial issues. How do you think that the limits of verbal language impact our ability to address issues of race? That's a very complicated issue. Um, for one thing, our whole tradition in psychoanalysis has its roots in a particular culture, as, as does any tradition. Um, psychoanalysis was born in, in a Europe um, over 100 years ago. Uh, there were certain scientific ideas which were in vogue then. In fact, uh, some of Freud's initial ideas about primitivity and childhood, which were based upon the uh, social anthropology of the time, have, have been proved to be racist and inaccurate. Anthropology has moved on. We sometimes still carry some of those assumptions unreflectively, such as the idea of primitivity uh, being similar to uh, inf inf infantile behavior. And um, what was called primitive culturally was uh, a mi total misunderstanding and a total misreading uh, based upon um, a very complex uh, set of uh, conditions some of which then bleed into the economic and political activities that were driving uh, all of the cultural practices and beliefs of Europe at the time. You know? So we're, that opens up into a very complex thing. But I think what, what we have is we all carry not just our personal dyadic and triadic histories, but we carry our cultural histories, which are often erased or um, uh, invisible to those who haven't learned about those. And that seems to be one of the biggest issues right now with um, white clinicians treating um, patients of different cultural and backgrounds and different complexions, different epidermal complexions. Well, tell us more about that. What, what happens in such cases? What, how do things go awry? Well, I, I have an example in, in chapter six of my book in my own encounter with a patient where, um, to make it simple, I was uh, understanding um, the patient's uh, difficulty as one that had to do with whether he could um, take into consideration a complex situation or whether he was seeing it as just black or white. And he was struggling with a decision uh, that was involving his partner. Um, what I didn't take into consideration, and he brought into my attention, as some patients will not do, 
Um, but I, 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 I'm going to assume that that happened because we had built up a relationship of trust previously in our work. Was that I wasn't taking into con- what I wasn't taking into consideration was what it would be like for him uh, as a black person, you know, to uh, enter into the conditions that were under consideration, and that those conditions were um, not insignificant; they were potentially traumatizing. And I think too often, um, because uh, white clinicians, not all, but many white clinicians, have very little experience in black communities. Um, in, in any community of color, black, Latinx, um, uh, Arab communities, uh, they, uh, they, they just do not um, have an awareness of the significance, the, uh, the emotional significance of certain social, economic, and political, political conditions, which are as, impact, as strongly impacting uh, emotional turbulence in a person, emotional instability, as as anything that happened in their family, or or might be happening between uh, you and the patient, their history, both remembered and um, dissociated, is so significant, and we're just beginning to learn about that and beginning to talk to each other about how we're going to work uh, with that. I mean, I I think it's not insurmountable. I think it's to recognize those differences is very important. It's just the same as when you're working with a patient uh, who has a dream. The unconscious meanings of that dream, um, uh, it's, uh, uh, that you may have some associations to them, but it's very important to know what the patient's associations are to them and to see the similarities and differences between those. But, but if I could try to take that a little further, you're saying that Part of what caused problems or misconnection was your failure to really comprehend his lived experience and how consideration of these complexities would would feel for him. But I'm willing to bet, just from the way that you wrote this book and how well-informed uh, you seem to be about the issues, that on a cognitive and intellectual level, you, you probably do have some understanding of the differences between you and him. And, and I think one of the things that often happens in our in our culture is that well-intentioned white folks, uh, we read a lot and we expose ourselves a lot to things and we learn. And so we feel like we know, quote unquote, know about the things we're supposed to know about. But are you contending that in order for there to be true connection or for there to have been true understanding between the two of you, that there was something about his experience that you failed to understand on an, on an embodied level? Um, I think what I was saying in that chapter was that actually the, the embodied cues, the, the ability to recognize distress, anger, disappointment, um, were uh, the signals that let me know that I was totally off base and not, not in connection with what was significant for him. I did not know cognitively the kinds of things that I just elaborated in, in, a, in, a, um, in a general sense. I did not know the specifics of those, and I w- did not have in mind even the general categories for those. But what signaled me that things were happening differently than I thought they might was, was uh, what was going on in me and 
what I could sense was going on emotionally in me and emotionally within him. So that was the connection there. But I also think you make a really important point, and that is that, you know, we're all struggling right now with regard to race, at least those of us who are making the effort are struggling to understand better what what it means uh, to be racist. There's this wonderful book by Ibram Kindi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And um, I think it's really important that, uh, and I emphasize in the book, that we acknowledge our vulnerability and that we uh, sometimes surrender to things that we don't fully understand and that also make us feel less um, sure of ourselves, less powerful um, uh, in a sense. And that is very difficult to do. Um, but I think the first step is to understand that there's value in that. There is value in all of a sudden me deciding, hey, you know what? I don't know what's going on here. I don't know uh, as much about what needs to be expressed here as my patient does, even though I'm supposed to be the, the, the professional helping. But of course, I mean, even when you're, you're working as a physician, um, you, you, you examine the patient, you say, is there pain here? What is, uh, you know, what does this feel like? You, we, it's always a collaboration. Um, we, when we're working on something, whether it's my problem, your problem, or our problem, it needs to be a collaboration. There needs to be a, a, um, a, an emotional connection. And for that to happen, another point I make is it needs to be, emo- the relationship needs to be emotionally not too strained. If, if uh, one is feeling too overstimulated or too understimulated or, you know, um, un- disconnected to the other, then the kinds of things that we value in psychotherapy, such as empathy, um, holding, uh, understanding, those things uh, begin to break down because when the emotional temperature is too high in the room, uh, it, you know, we know that uh, for any of us, whether we're doing therapy or whether we're just, you know, sitting and thinking about something, uh, our ability to take in cues, our ability to organize those cues, and our ability to solve problems with that information is uh, severely uh, limited by that that emotional turbulence. Stephen, we're almost out of time. Uh, before we go, you want to tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm not writing. <laughs> I've done so much writing in the last year or two. Um, uh, not that I never will again, but I, I just I'm not going to plan on writing if, until I have something to say. I have been uh, in the um, in the world of psychoanalysis, uh, very involved with a number of uh, groups that are. Uh, being active around the issues of race and class and social justice. Uh, we're looking at how we do our work, uh, how we teach, how we structure our uh, institutes in terms of issues of power along uh, lines of uh, race, uh, class, gender, and other intersectional dimensions. And uh, for me, that seems very important. Uh, I'm very you know, I'm 72 years old now. I'm very uh, committed to uh, and excited by the fact that there's a new generation of, of younger uh, analysts coming up. Early professionals are still in training who have had very different experiences than those of us who are older. They've read different materials. And there's an opportunity now for the kind of sea change, particularly around issues of race, gender, and class, 
that psychoanalysis sort of lost sight of when it migrated from Europe uh, in the early days of Freud's free clinics to America, where uh, psychoanalysis has recently become a kind of leisurely, uh, or I wouldn't say leisurely, it's a privilege of those who can afford it. And uh, hopefully that's, that's beginning to change significantly as folks who are working in institutional settings and in, in communities where people can't afford to pay the high prices of, you know, a three to four or five times a week psychoanalysis are a- actually able to benefit tremendously from psychoanalytically informed work. And I think how we do it, where we do it, all of that is up for grabs and is changing in, in uh, extremely exciting and innovative ways. And I'm dedicating myself to supporting and being a part of that as much as I can. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you again for being on the show. This has been a great conversation. I want to remind our listeners uh, about your book. I've been speaking to Stephen H. Knobloch, and the book is entitled Bodies and Social Rhythms, Navigating Unconscious Vulnerability and Emotional Fluidity. Stephen, thank you. Thank you.